So it's that time again. We're back for another episode of Sports Weekly. I'm joined as ever by the two Sports Weekly family members. Chris, say hi, Chris. Hello. And Josh, say hi, Josh. Hi, Josh. And welcome, everybody, because this is Sports Weekly. So welcome back to Sports Weekly. We're back again to talk about everything that's happened this week. Well, not quite everything, but lots of things that have happened this week in the world of sport. Chris, how are you? Uh, I'm, I'm not too bad. Thanks, uh, thanks Dan. Yeah, just uh, you, shall I go on? I was going to say, you, you are recording from your new house today. I am, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, an internet-less house. Uh, that's a problem, <laughs> you know. Which isn't so good at the moment, but hopefully that'll be sorted soon. But uh, Luckily, phone data is an absolute lifesaver. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Although, listeners, we're not sure whether Chris is going to make it through a whole podcast because it turns out he only has like a gigabyte of data on his mobile. Uh, oh, living in- from, the, from the 1990s. Um, <laughs> but uh, hopefully, Chris, we've got you for the full episode. If not, then it will be a joy for the time we do have with you. And <laughs> afterwards, me and Josh will just finish off crying our eyes out and um wishing you were here but other than that josh how are you i'm very well dan just uh booked myself a wedding venue this Ooh, week which was, which was very nice yes, and um we're both are you in a castle <laughs> uh, it's a tent it's a nice tent but yeah oh i'm sorry i thought you said it was a 10 like a 10 out of 10 as if you were... <laughs> it is a 10 but it's a tent <laughs> oh a lovely tent um now for listeners that aren't aware, me and Josh are big fans of Taskmaster, and there was talk of of uh, of Josh's stag do being Taskmaster task related themes. Is is that still a goer, Josh, or or you're less it's, less certain on that? It's still a goer. It's Ooh. very much in my head and nowhere oh. else at the minute. But it, hey, I'm I'm up good for the challenge start of in your head. organizing it. Yeah, I'm well up for it. Oh, how exciting! Um, Good weeks of sport this week. So much has happened, and we'll get onto all that later. But Josh, it looks like Leicester, hundred percent, no doubt, definitely going to win the league. Yeah, I mean, the relentless winning machine that is Leicester City just just <laughs> plod on. It is. Yep, yeah, we'll catch catch you know City first, then Liverpool, and just you know cruise to a a lovely second Premier League title. Hey, both of those teams are coming up in December, and when you absolutely annihilate both of them, then. You'll be top of the pile come Christmas, and the world is your oyster. Well, um, you know, yeah, Champions League, and they, you know, Champions League's hard. You know, they've Leicester got none of that to worry about, and we'll be fresh and ready come December. Hey, you'll, you'll, I'm, I'm absolutely seeing Leicester City. Well, I'm seeing blue lifting the trophy. Whether that's Leicester or Manchester City, I can't quite quite work out. You know, it'll probably be one of them. Or maybe Liverpool in an away kit that they bring out at the end of the season that's blue. Yeah. Who knows? Um, not so good for me and Chris this week. Villa just crumbled. We were so good. That's the problem. Like, Liverpool weren't even good at all. Mane wanted to dive to win games. Firmino tried to cheat and use his armpit to score a goal. And... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, ridiculous decision, but we'll get onto that at some point, I imagine. Um, but we, we both our clubs let in. Uh, oh, very, didn't we? It's how the, devastating is it to let yeah, in? It's the worst well, way. In, well, in Villa's case, a, a 94th minute loss, basically uh, after yeah. after I think Mane scored the goal. 
and in your case, Chris, a 92nd minute equaliser when you were on, on course for your first away win since August. Yeah, yeah. All thanks to Quesia Paya. Great name. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, just wish it wasn't. <laughs> it, won't be your, it won't be your son's first name anymore, will it? <laughs> first one. Um, but yeah, how devastating. I can't believe that in Villa's case, I can't believe we did not win that game. We were well, so much, so much the, better than Liverpool. Yeah, but it's also like a repeat of the Spurs game where he played really well, and oh, then last and few the minutes, Arsenal game, Arsenal game winning again, last few minutes letting oh. go. Do you think it's fitness thing or like a mental thing or or what? Uh, I think I don't know. We obviously want to play football in a certain way, and that's admirable. But I yeah. think that it is. A bit of naivety, maybe. Poor yeah. game management. Because uh, so many of our goals, we concede from well mistakes. We make the mistakes, which then let the opposition score. Like, yeah. if Liverpool had played it all the way around us and scored two brilliant goals or a, or a 35-yard wonder goal, then I'd have been like, yep, fair play. But it was two crosses. And we had... We were dealing with crosses all game. Because they kept putting it in and it kept going on to Tyrone Mings' head or Engels' head. And subs didn't help, but two crosses beat us and shameful. But we were so good in that game. So I can't slate any of the players because we we didn't deserve to lose. But then that's what good teams do, I suppose. And you don't get any awards from the end of the season for for playing well and not deserving to lose. Hmm. So it's a lesson, I suppose. It's an absolute lesson. But anyway, we are going to talk about the Premier League and the EFL in our uh, football topic later on. We've also got the devastating Rugby World Cup final. But again, we'll talk about that later. And then we've got our time talking back again, because Chris is going to talk about the F1 and Lewis Hamilton um, securing his sixth World Championship title. And... Josh is then going to look at uh, some tennis and uh, focus on the end of the tennis season, the big prize at the end of the tennis season. And then we've got Chris's quiz later before we go over the polls for this week at the end of the show. But before we get on with all of that, we have the polls from this or last week, I should say. Now, the poll from last week was the craziest oddest strangest thing uh, that any of us have ever seen happen on a football pitch now we'd obviously had a crazy uh, um, a strangest thing that had happened on any sports pitch beforehand but we went solely for football pitch because of granite Xhaka's loss of all captain ability when he mugged the arsenal fans off last weekend so we went for as i said the oddest or craziest thing to ever happen on a football pitch that we'd seen Chris, you went for the Battle of New Orenburg 2006, was it 2006? Uh, yeah, it was. Yes, uh, you're welcome. Uh, which I've since watched back twice because I've been so enthralled by the fact that what were they on? <laughs> what were Portugal <laughs> and Netherlands players on that game? They just had an absolute vendetta for each other. Yeah, it's fantastic stuff. Oh, what a game to watch. Uh, Josh, you went for the Battle of the Buffet. Um, and uh, Cesc Fabregas throwing a pizza at Sir Alex Ferguson on his face and finally admitting it on a league of their own after so many years of wonderment. Um, And then I went for Kieran Dyer versus Lee Bowyer, the absolute brawl they had because Kieran Dyer didn't pass Lee Bowyer the ball 
which is just the strangest reason to start wanting to tear your teammates' eyes out. But the polls are always posted on our Twitter page. Our Twitter page, for those people that don't follow us, is at Pod Sports Weekly. That's at Pod Sports Weekly. And you can follow us there, get to grips with our other podcasts. You can vote on our polls. You can keep up to date with our general sports chat. Would you like to know the results? Please do. Go on. I I want to lie and say it was close. It really, really wasn't close this week. (laughs) Um, For two reasons, I suppose. Number one, and this was genuinely accidental, but I did put a typo on both of your suggestions. (laughs) It's a fix. It it could be a fix. I did then post videos of them afterwards on the same thread, so people could then go and watch them to refresh their memories. But I did put Battle of Nuremberg 2016 on yours, Chris, and I also put Battle of the Buffer on yours, Josh, (laughs) instead of Buffet. So, I mean, a slight fix, I will say. Um, But genuinely accidental i mean no harm i come in peace but in last place josh for once you've not won you've gone from either, first to last i'm either top of the tree or zero so <laughs> yeah. constantly zero to heroing all of the time um but josh battle of the buffer as i put but battle of the buffet two percent of the votes i mean two percent that seems harsh that's one in... vote, probably. <laughs> no, a little bit more than one vote, but I mean, not too many more. However, in joint second place, with four percent of the votes each, <laughs> that high was yeah was the Battle of Nuremberg, which was a, an insane game, and the, the other comments or the two thousand and sixteen. Uh, well, I mean, it's it's unclear. Whoever put this poll out has put both of them on. Um, But they could have had two choices, 2016 or 2006. I'm sure there was a Battle of Nuremberg in each. Anyway, um, we'll skip past the typo because um, I wanted to win one. That's not the reason. But, you know, finally I have. But you like 19%. Well, some of the other votes I'd completely forgotten had happened. So someone suggested, or two people actually suggested, um, when father christmas fell out of the sky at i think it was villa versus arsenal and landed on the pitch at half time um i think he might either landed on the roof or landed in the center circle i can't remember but crazy some people suggested and there was a lot of villa suggestions here because we must have been in some crazy games on the pitch but i completely understand both of these suggestions because someone else suggested villa versus leeds last season where a goal was scored and we thought Villa thought that a player was going to kick the ball out because we had an injury. He put his hand up saying he was going to kick the ball out, then passed it down the line. They went on and scored. And then Marcelo Bielsa told their players to give us the goal. Albert Adoma walked all the way through only for Pontus Janssen to not really or ignore the message and try and push Albert Adoma out of the way as he was trying to put the ball in the net. And then Pontus Janssen absolutely, absolutely losing his mind about having to give up a goal so someone suggested that one which i thought was a really good one but Mm. with 89 percent of the votes i'm not quite sure how twitter has worked out the calculations two plus four plus four plus 89 equals 99 not 100 but with 89 percent of the votes kieran dyer versus lee bowyer was the winner for once guys i've won i've won something i feel like an absolute champion (laughs) 
We're proud uh, of them. Oh, well, you know. Thanks, a good suggestion. It's one of his all-time Premier League moments, isn't it? It was one? just, and I've watched that back a few times after suggesting it. It's just insane. Like, how angry is Lee Bowyer after a not being given the ball, b trying to kill Lee, um, Kieran Dyer, and then c just walking away whilst in the clutches of Alan Shearer? He's angry at all those moments. I feel like our next poll should be what had happened to Lee Bowyer that day to make him have that reaction. Yeah. Yeah, we should do a, a really a one that we've got no idea what the answer is every week from now on, and it's just us coming up with guessing guessing different answers. I think that'd be a great idea. Um, but yeah, just really odd. What an odd game and what an odd situation. And then when Alan Shearer couldn't believe that Lee Bowyer had been sent a red card, even though it was for um, I think it was for uh, basically aggravated assault, and Alan Shearer was like, "Why's he got a red card for?" All he did was punch him a few times and headbutt him. Um, just a really, really odd one. But we move forward because, and this is one I'm going to ask you both to think about, um, because our poll for this week uh, is going to be all about the greatest ever footballing comebacks. So you've got a whole episode to think about it. We're going to ask for your opinions by the end of it. We're going to come up with three suggestions as normal. And then on our Twitter poll, the fourth suggestion will be other and you'll be able to tell us what you think the greatest comeback is. So I'll leave that with you guys, but let's get on with the rest of the show. So our first topic this week is all about, first of all, the Premier League, and then we're going to go on to talk about the EFL. So uh, the EFL Cup, I should say. Now, the first thing we're going to talk about is Andre Gomez and the horrific injury that he suffered at the weekend uh, in Everton's draw against Tottenham. Um, I think I speak on behalf of all of us when I say we wish Andre Gomez the speediest of recoveries because what a horrendous injury to have received. Um, Josh, you've seen the injury now because obviously you watched the highlights on Match of the Day and they didn't show any of the replays, but you've now seen it. What what do you make of the of the injury itself? And then we'll go on to talk about the incidents relating to it afterwards. But what do you make of the injury? I think when you see an injury and you yourself uh, just kind of want to crawl into yourself, it looks so horrible. You just can't even imagine the pain that that person must have gone through. Oh, my goodness. It looked where just bones just poking the directions they should not be poking. It was absolutely awful, awful thing to... Didn't don't really want to see it ever again, to be quite honest. No, and it, and it is horrible, isn't it? Especially, I think uh, pictures of him at the hospital with his with his bones sticking out of his ankle the way it was, not out of the skin, but you could see the bones of his ankle and his foot facing the wrong way. It's just awful, and I, you could tell immediately that something was seriously wrong by the the reactions of not only obviously the Everton players, but the Spurs players around. I mean, Serge Aurier couldn't even look. Son, you could see just how horrendous he felt. He was crying himself. All of the Everton players, heads in hands, rushing over, holding Andre Gomez. It, you could tell instantly, couldn't you, that it was it was just a horrendous injury. Mm. It was like a like a sort of war injury, almost that like a like something had been amputated. Such was the kind of reaction. Just utter utter horror. I bet it seemed like none of the players in that pitch had ever seen anything like that before and probably never will again. It's just, yeah. it's just I think I feel like the only person who would have potentially seen that, as as we spoke about off air beforehand, 
um, would have potentially been Theo Walcott, who I think was at Arsenal at the time that the horrific ah, yeah. injury happened to Eduardo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I mean, for those who haven't seen it, Son possibly angry about not receiving a, a free kick a, a short while beforehand, um, trapped back. It was a cynical challenge on Gomez. He was nowhere near the ball. It wasn't a high tackle. It was almost like a trip tackle. And Gomez then went off balance, went to put his foot down on the floor. And as he did so, his foot turned on the floor. His ankle and foot ended up facing the wrong way. And then he collated with uh, Serge Aurier. Um, Chris, you've seen the tackle. Mm. And obviously a yellow card was given beforehand. Either, I think it was Martin Atkinson was the ref, either he's heard something in his ear from VAR, because it didn't say that VAR was checking for a red card on the screen, or he's seen the severity of the injury and decided to upgrade it himself from a yellow to a red. A red card was eventually given. Do you think that was the right decision? Or do you think that whilst the injury was unfortunate, that it was a yellow card at most? Um, Yeah, I've... Yeah, having taken it all into account, I think it's the first instance I can ever remember on a football pitch where they've changed the the card from yellow to red just based on severity of, of injury. Because that must remember. have been what it was, mustn't it? Because uh, there was no VAR. The tackle, was, I thought, was fairly innocuous and was just you come in a garden yellow card you see all the time for just a bit of a trip. Um so I think Son was really hard on by it, although he didn't look in the frame of mind to continue anyway. Oh, I don't think he could have continued whatever no, happened. I think he would have been subbed anyway, because he understandably uh, in shock. Um, but yeah, I don't think it was the right decision, despite obviously you know, Hart goes out to Gomez. And, but I don't think it was the, the right um, refereeing decision, because um, yeah, just fairly innocuous, really. And it was just a very unfortunate landing which led to it. Um, I th- I think that's that's the key word there that you just said an unfortunate landing that's led to that the yeah. severity of the injury rather than the tackle itself. Because the contrast to Eduardo is one we mentioned a minute ago is that on that one I think it was Martin Taylor I think it was yeah City player. It I mean that was a very forceful aggressive tackle. Well, that was um, different, wasn't it? Because it was it was almost static from him a lunge. With yeah. studs showing that whereas studs went straight into Eduardo's ankle and it snapped instantly, yeah. whereas the Son one, He's it wasn't. He so was you behind. You can't get force into it anyway, even if you wanted no. to. And the <laughs> Son was almost facing the wrong way from him, and it was it was a trip motion, wasn't it? It was a trip to try and bring him down. It was a, it was a professional foul and a yeah. cynical challenge. He could never have known the impact it was going to have. No, and that doesn't tend to get a red card anywhere else on the pitch unless um, Andre Gomez is the last man and running through on goal for me. Yeah. What, I mean, what do you think, Josh? Red card for you or not? I, I don't think it can be. I, you saw the yellow came out and you're thinking, I think all day long that's a yellow card. Cynical, stopping uh, a clear attack with no nowhere near the ball. That's a yellow card all day long. And exactly like you say, Chris, he's looked at the injury and thought, blimey, I better, I better get a red out. Otherwise... You know, Everton are going to go. Are going to be really angry because it, they think you know because it's such a terrible injury, the necessary punishment must be a red card. But it's got to be a, a punishment on the basis of the tackle and not the result of the tackle. You know, you yeah. can imagine like 
even a really innocuous tackle if circumstances you know funny landing um colliding into someone else could result in oh, a really bad injury so yeah never a red card for me and, and what's I mean, the to play, to... like if someone commits a horrendous studs up challenge which thankfully doesn't break someone's leg oh it's only a yellow because you didn't injure him i mean that's mad so you can, so it's like a bit of a dangerous precedent to set really yeah i mean on on the flip side of things to be, to play devil's advocate i suppose you could argue that it was son's action and son's tackle that then caused the horrendous injury so is he therefore endangering the the uh, endangering an opponent i should say um that's the only thing that i think that atkinson could have given it for yeah but then every foul potentially is isn't it yeah like, it, it potentially is yeah. shirt and they fall down and break their arm because they go to to break their fall and get it wrong like i mean yeah, yeah i find it I don't think like, you know when Suarez that. bit a couple of people, that that didn't cause a bad injury. I think they called it the biting spree. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know that that wasn't a particularly bad injury. I'm sure it healed in a few days. Um, but yeah, that's obviously take a, a pound of flesh out. Of it, yeah. <laughs> I feel like Sons. Is the if he took a chunk out, do you reckon that would have been like even worse? <laughs> and a well, double, yeah, twenty-four game ban or something. Yeah. But I can't yeah. remember how long he got banned for. Oh, like what? It if... was a while. What if he does ten, take a chunk games, of flesh out? I think. What if he does take a chunk of flesh out and once he does it on the arm and the guy heals and once he does it on the neck and kills a guy? Well, it's the same thing, but oh, one's worse than the other because the injury's worse. <laughs> so it's like... <laughs> I know that's one, bad, he's just he's going down for life and one he's going to be banned for a few games. Yeah, exactly. Just, maybe he was just a vampire and he wanted to kind of test the waters on live TV just to see whether people would have a problem with it. They did, and so he stopped doing it since. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe, yeah. But, I mean, to get back to Andre Gomez, do you think... Because I don't see any way now that Son's red card's going to be overturned because they don't really want to overturn anything at the minute the referees are doing live in the game. They've seen the injury to Andre Gomez. The ref has seen it as a yellow then changed his mind and seen it as a red. If they were then to overturn this decision, they would, because the ref has very clearly seen it, they would then be saying that the referee yeah. is inept. So I don't see, even though for me it should be, I don't see it now being overturned for some. No, I think it was quite an inept performance all round, to be honest, really. So. <laughs> In the week, and we will talk about that very, very soon. But I, I just don't... I, and I think it's a shame for Son because, I mean, the biggest shame obviously is for Andre Gomez because he's going to miss a serious amount of, of football. However, Everton have posted that he's, he's had surgery today and it's been very, very successful. Um, and he's he will make, a they, they think, a full recovery. Um, yeah, so hopefully we'll see him on the pitch in the not too distant future. Um, yeah. But... And then okay. you hear the nice stories afterwards of Seamus Coleman going into the Spurs dressing room to check Son's okay and those kind of things, which then just kind of restore your faith in football altogether, I think. And the crowd was chanting his name. It's, yeah, it, the kind of football family really sort of comes together at a time like that. Yeah, so I, I'm hoping it's going to be overturned, but I don't, I don't think it will. And... I don't know. It's just it's it's difficult refereeing at the minute because and and I think it brings us on quite nicely to our next kind of segment and we've touched on it before in a few different podcasts. But VAR again, just almost to the point of 
ruining football. And I, and I don't I don't say that lightly. I genuinely think it's ruining football and the way it's been displayed at the minute. I went to the Aston Villa Liverpool game at the weekend. Great game, great atmosphere. Aston Villa score first. We celebrate and then everyone just dies down celebrating doesn't chant because then VAR checking the goal comes on the screen and we wait for two and a half minutes for them to be told that we can then celebrate again. And it's things <laughs> like that, which just, it, that's not what football's about. We shouldn't have to celebrate and go wild and then think, oh no, actually we need to stop celebrating because that goal might not be given. Do you think all this has made football fans in general just appreciate <laughs> has it raised the reputation of celebrating? Because <laughs> I didn't really think about it much before. But that is the thing which I keep hearing from, from well, from you guys, from other on other football podcasts, uh, in the print media, on things like Match of the Day. And everyone's talking about how it ruins them being able to just enjoy a match and celebrate when they want to. Well, you've, they've, got, really... they've got to think. The thing about football is it's all about the fans. People are there to watch football. It's an entertainment business. And when it stops becoming entertaining for the fans, then something is wrong. And it's not entertaining for the fans at the minute because we have to stop all the time. No one knows what's going on. It just says VAR is checking something. Penalty, yeah. goal, red card. We don't know what for. We don't know what's happened. We don't know what's going on. We wait for two and a half, three minutes at a time. The ref doesn't even know what's going on because he's not even getting a chance to look at it. He's just hearing in his earpiece that something is being checked and this is what's being checked. No one knows what's happening. We're all standing around looking at each other and then play resumes again. So or maybe you, something bad happens. I don't, just, would it be it, better if it did show what they were looking at on the screen and then taking away from the celebration, perhaps, but adding some suspense, like, oh, are we going to get it? Are we not? Or would you think, no, don't check every goal. Just, you know, only check the ones where the ref has flagged up. Oh, I'm not sure about something there. I, I think three things would be better, personally. I think that um, if we could hear what the referees were saying, like they do in rugby, that would be number one because then we would actually understand what's going on. And yes, you may hear some foul language, but if players were then fined for that, that would then slowly start to die out. And actually, refs would start to garner more respect because players would really think about their language that they're using around the referee because they know the referee's got a microphone. So that's number one. Number two, if they showed the replays on the screen, then the fans would know what is happening and therefore we'd be able to see what it's being checked for. And then it would... It would make sure that VAR is definitely getting it right. And number three, why is that screen on the side if it's not being used? Use the screen. Then the referee makes the decision and it's all down to him in the middle of the park and his, and his people who are there. And all the VAR people would be there to do is just to say, look, we're not sure about this. We think you need to check it. And it would I instantly think... improve all of that. Mm. I mean, what do you think, Chris? I think that it's... Well, I think that most people in control of football don't we've known this for a while but they just don't I don't think they really care about any of the fans in the actual stadium that's no, why no. they schedule matches for, like at Christmas for example the fixture list came out for Christmas recently and like and like somebody's gonna have to travel like from Newcastle down to I think Bournemouth or Brighton on like a Monday night at Christmas <laughs> it's just like it's crazy and there's the, oh and the amount of times I think in that occasion, but also other matches where there's no trains back because they decide just for TV purposes to schedule a game really late on in the evening and things like that. And that's because they 
the more money is in the TV audience than in the fan or than what the fans are contributing. So it's just all geared towards television. And then the people watching the matches on TV, it's not as bad for them because they're getting a million replays. They can hear what the pundit and the co-commentators are saying. So they're getting quite a good understanding of why VR has been used at that time and what for. Whereas, like you say, all the fans don't have a clue. And so it just seems to be part of that same bit. Also, the prices of like away games to go and uh, watch your team is extortionate compared to, well, just having a subscription to Sky or BT for a month or whatever. It's just so much cheaper. So, yeah. so it's just like the fans are the screwed over yet them? again. It's just the latest in a long line where football's just taking the mick out of its, its own supports, really, is what I think. And, I, and I, th- I think I think VAR is is slowly contributing that, and and even the the people who are so for VAR in its current yeah. form are completely turning against it and do yeah. not want it in football. I mean, there's so many decisions this weekend that were wrong. I'm going to take you through a few. As much as I didn't want it to be, and we thought it was offside at the time, and the referee f- and the linesman flagged for offside, and Tom Heaton stopped and put his arm in the air. Um, so if it was given after that, it would have been an absolute outrage from the Villa fans, from the manager, from Tom Heaton, whatever. But it wasn't offside. And the and and you can they can draw lines and whatever to Roberto Firmino's armpit and say his armpit's offside. He wasn't offside. He was and it's no an way. absolutely ridiculous call. And the fact that they try to to hide it to almost spare what what I think is the linesman's blushes. Um and tried to redraw the line so it matched up with his armpit and say, oh, actually, you can score with his armpit. Let's just call it for that. I mean, what did you make of that one, Josh? What I don't understand is when pre-VAR, when they used to like kind of just put the line on sort of in the replay for kind of TV viewers or they used to do it at half time, that that line would have meant that Firmino was on side. But yeah. it's the same line, but VAR's just decided you can score with like a millimetre of your body. So I don't understand. We've gone from a position where like what used to be on side and like there was an element of benefit of the doubt, it's just not there anymore. It's completely gone. It's insane. I, I think the worst part about that decision is they've measured it from Tyrone Mings's knee, which is fine because that's the point that's closer to the goal and he can affect the ball with that part of his body. The part that Firmino scores with is his right foot. His right foot is so far behind Tyrone Mings's body that that's the point his party scores the goals the goal with so surely that's that should be where it's measured from for roberto for me not his armpit he doesn't score the goal with his armpit <laughs> he scores it with his right foot and it's a good finish i just think that's crazy it's absolutely mad i you you cannot just like look into the minutiae of every offside decision it it worked fine before like sometimes they got them wrong um sometimes you know you give the striker the benefit of the doubt because that's the rule. But how is that the benefit of the doubt that you're looking at Firmino's armpit? I just, I, yeah, I can't get my head around it. I think I think it's absolutely crazy. The other one, Chris, and the the other biggest one for me is, and you've seen the highlights of all the games, the, the Deli Ali handball. Mm. Um, for those who haven't seen it, he's in a he's in a challenge with Yeri Mina. Deli Ali puts his hands above his head. And the ball hits him on the arm with his arms in an unnatural position because he's just challenging for the ball. He's not been pushed. His arms are in the air. They look at that for three minutes or over three minutes and then still decide it's not a penalty. They look at that. They must have shown that replay about 20 times because that's what they're looking at. Yeah. The fans can't see uh, that, but the people at home that, can. 
Especially I, I, that one was like early on in the season, we saw goals be, like uh, in the Man City Tottenham game in the last second. There was a goal that Jesus scored that was then ruled out for handball by Laporte, I think. Yes, and it was it, Laporte by his brushed, brushed his arm. My new brush off, whereas Deli Alley's was like a clear contact to deflect he the ball. He basically away. punched it. Yeah. <laughs> so that was like, yeah, so much more clear to get him. And yeah, it wasn't. And so I think, yeah. Uh, just to to sort of summarise it, it just isn't working because I think it's impossible to apply it consistently in into this minutiae level of detail. Whereas when it before VAR, everyone accepted there was like a margin of error, and therefore you, well, you win some, you lose some sort of thing. And then I don't, I think people just sort of accept that. Whereas now people are the same calls are being shown so clearly. And going completely, a completely different decision is being made each time. So it's just become a bit of a lost really as to what what decision you get. I completely agree, and I think Mike Riley said last season. I think he said they they replayed or re went through all of the decisions from the season. Uh, they re went through what they thought each game um, were the key decisions. Went through it as a body, and they decided that they got eighty percent of the calls right, which sounds crazy that they're getting one in five wrong. But that was before this season. There is no way, no way that they are still getting 80% of the big calls right. No way. Close to so 50, if, I'd say. So if, if anything, VARs come in to stop the mistakes and made refereeing worse and made more mistakes. So why is it there? For me, it shouldn't be there. But we're going to move on because I know we're running out of time. I just want to quickly talk, before we go on the EFL Cup, I quickly want to talk about Norwich. Made such a good start to the season, looked so good, had really good young players, beat Man City, and they're in a massive, massive decline uh, in their form. They're currently sat in 19th place. Josh, I asked you before, I'm going to ask you in exactly the same way, is the Pookie party over? Do you, do you worry about Norwich this season? I really do. Um, they've never been kind of a, a watertight team. They've always conceded a lot, but you know, at the start of the season, they were kind of free-scoring Pookie. Everyone was having a pookie party in everyone's fantasy team. And it, now the goals have dried up. You're really starting to doubt whether they can stay up. It's it's basically a leaky defence and no goals up top. And you just kind of think that's a sure surefire way to go down very quickly. Um, I mean, you look at the likes of... I mean, Villa aren't too far ahead of... Norwich are only four points and uh, three places ahead. Sheffield United are having a, a whale of a season and are currently sat in sixth position um, on 16 points, so uh, nine points ahead of Norwich. You look at Norwich, Chris, and they've had a lot of injuries, so you can completely understand why they're not possibly at their best. But does that just show you that they should have spent more money in the summer transfer window? Because I think they only ended up spending about £3 million. And, and for me, that's not enough to ensure your safety in the Premier League. That's true, although Sheffield United, I don't think, spent particularly big themselves. and that's They right. didn't, but they have. They did buy some yeah. bigger players, the likes of Callum Robinson, um, I think, goals. was it Lise, Lise Mousset? Yeah, he um, set up all the goals can, actually. He had a great game. So, yeah, yeah they yeah, that's made a difference. Yeah, I think it is partly that. Um Yes, I think they could have. Ollie McBurney, I should say, at Sheffield United as well. Oh, I think yeah. he cost £20 million. Pounds. Yeah, that's true. Um, and, but 
part the other part of the problem is you know you've mentioned the the injury list is enormous i don't think they could have foreseen quite how bad that injury list would get but but as josh mentioned they weren't particularly solid even with all their first choice defenders around they were always a team which is built around attacking threat and trying to outscore the opposition so of more concern i think they with that they're kind of accepting they're going to concede goals here and there and hope the uh, defence can shoot them out of, sorry the attack can shoot them out of trouble but they've been nowhere near recently they're just not really creating anything and any chances they are making are being missed I don't really know why because the personnel stayed the same um, I know they've got Hernandez has just come back the left winger so I think he's their first choice so he's going to make a bit of a difference but uh, he had a real dearth of of quality going forward now which must be quite frankly alarming for them really yeah and i think that with all their injuries they still managed to beat man city so that that team is still in there yeah and that gets just a more, more like a freak though isn't it yeah absolutely <laughs> but it, but they did showcase their ability to counter teams and to to hold it tight when needed and 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 be ruthless and they're not showing any of those qualities at the minute and one final thing i was going to say on them is the table is kind of mathematically not helping them in 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 that I mean, mid-table is absolutely enormous. It stretches from fifth down to about 17th. There's just mm. all loads and loads of teams within about three or four points of each other. They're all taking points off each other. Off each other. They're all capable of beating each other, which means that that mass in the middle gradually is accumulating points and getting away from knowledge. And they're in danger of being cut adrift at the bottom, along with uh, Watford. And the you mentioned Watford, and that's their next game at home on Friday the 8th of November, which will be a huge game for both teams. Uh, and they've also got the likes of Everton, who are not far above them, and Southampton both coming up. And, and you feel like those are games that if they're going to stay up, they have to win because around that time, they've also got Leicester City, Wolves, uh, Tottenham, Arsenal coming up as well. So they've got some tough games coming up. Um yeah. Uh, and then they've got Aston Villa away in December as well, and uh, on Boxing Day, I should say, actually. I think, and obviously last time out, Aston Villa beat them five one. Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. That's gonna be. Gonna I feel be, like. Uh, I feel like I they've kind gonna... of tried to play the same way with yeah. their kind of injury list, and it just it just isn't working. They try and play out from the back. They give it away. They concede. It's becoming a really common pattern. I ju- I think maybe Fark has just been a little bit unwilling to kind of compromise and lock down sometimes knowing his injury list. Yeah, I think that's true. And uh, they are facing some, the teams you mentioned there, Dan, there's a lot of poor defences in there. So they've got yeah. every, you, you couldn't really ask for many better teams to face to, to try and score. Exactly. And, and, that's, and that's what they have to target. And they have to kind of almost forget about the games against the, the higher teams because that they aren't the games that are going to decide their fate. But the games against, against Southampton, the games against Watford, the games against the people around them, as you say, who have poor defences at the minute, they have to target those games. Now, we're just going to move very, very briefly onto the EFL Cup because there was an immense game that is is kind of the basis of our um, of our discussion, of our poll at the end of this, of this podcast. Um, Liverpool 5, Arsenal 5. Chris, you managed to watch the full game. How brilliant, but also how insane was that game, and how many brilliant goals were scored as well? Fantastic! The uh, it's my favourite game of the season by by the same, team. yeah. It was pure unadulterated entertainment for for ninety minutes. 
yeah, wonderful. I mean, it was sort of a combination of even though Arsenal played really well, like they, they, their counter attacking was superb. Uh, Mesut Ozil was on fire. Yeah, Ozil played well. Martinelli, the young lad up front, had a fantastic yeah. game. Clinically took his chances. Uh, Ozil's assist as well, and then if you watched on the advertising board, and you put it in, that was fun. I enjoyed that. But the whole time you were aware that it is Arsenal, and they've always got it in them to throw it away. Maybe throw it away is harsh, but that. But that's 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 basically what they did, though, wasn't it? Because Divock Origi, the scorer of only the most important goals, scored in the 94th minute to give to to kind of bring Liverpool back level. The combination of Arsenal being Arsenal and Liverpool's ability to to, on midweek nights at Anfield to pull comebacks out of nowhere, especially involving Divock Origi. Those two factors meant it was always ever going to end one way, wasn't it? <laughs> so, almost, yeah. in one way, I was surprised at the goals that Liverpool scored because they were absolutely fantastic shots or acrobatic, and they were just. I mean, the Oxley Chamberlain one was incredible. Yeah, absolutely vicious strike. But yeah. on the other, I was like, well, this was always going to happen. So, <laughs> in another way, it kind of wasn't surprising if that makes sense. But uh, yeah, fantastic evening's entertainment, and, and so much young talent on display. I mean, Josh. Um, teenager Curtis Jones scoring the final penalty. Um, I think it was in front of the cop end. How good must that feel to get to, to score such an important penalty, but also to get your team through to the quarterfinals um, of, of the EFL Cup, a, a competition that they've got such a good chance of winning? Mm, the, I mean, yeah, the euphoria in front of the cop. Uh, it's, you know, he's he's smashed it in. It's unbelievable feeling. After a game like that as well, you must have already be riding as high as a kite and then to score the winning penalty. What a game. I must admit, I thought Arsenal got a little bit lucky. I thought a couple of their goals were down to kind of, not maybe mistakes by the keeper, but certainly he is handling in the box. He palmed them out, you know, not in great places. And Arsenal kind of profited from that well, but they didn't kind of score the level of goals that Liverpool kind of, you know, belted in. Oxlade and Origi's goal was great as well. My goodness. It the was. kind of swivelly got on that was very impressive. I mean, imagine having a, a player who barely has any shots on target, but every shot he does have seemed to go in, and they're always the most important goal of the season. I, I mean, what, it, I, what I a guy to bring a bit of like that about Batshuayi as well. He seems to score really important goals and yeah, not, not play very much. I mean, yeah. I mean, what? But what an option to have on the bench to bring on in games when you know you need a goal. And, and and he's likely to score. I mean, very, very, very briefly, because uh, we are running out of time. But the uh, the quarter-final draws have been made. Um, Aston Villa versus Liverpool, uh, which I was delighted about, obviously. Um, but there's still a chance it might not be played, although I, I, I guarantee that the EFL do everything in their power to make sure that Liverpool play their game. Um, no, no comment. Um but yeah, Manchester United got Colchester United at home. Oxford United were drawn at home to Manchester City. Everton and Leicester, uh, Leicester drawn together as well. Really tough semi-finals for Villa uh, and Everton and Leicester. Slightly easier ones possibly for Manchester United and Manchester City, but there's always a chance for an upset. In one word, guys, just one team. Chris, I'll come to you first. One word, which team do you think is going to win the competition? It's a boring answer, but Manchester City. Josh? Leicester City. 
<laughs> got to go Leicester. Josh, I'm actually going to side with you. I think Leicester City are going to win as well. All I'm hoping for, really, though, is a repeat of the brilliant Arsenal-Liverpool game in one of these games in this round. And fingers crossed, Villa make it all the way because I'm almost certain that Villa are going to win, Josh. I'm sorry to, sorry to tell you. Well, our next podcast is all about a sad topic. If you're an England fan, I suppose, not if you're a South Africa fan, because we're going to talk about the Rugby World Cup final. And after such a brilliant semi-final, how disappointing was the final, guys? Um, It all felt a bit flat, didn't it? (laughs) Oh, honestly. I mean, how how much did Warren Gatlin's prophecy of England treating the semi-final like a final and then falling flat on their face in the final, how much did that come to fruition? He, he absolutely called it. He nailed it. <laughs> but also, I think that detracts from how good South Africa were. Because I think we have to say they were executed their game plan perfectly. Completely stopped England getting any momentum going. Uh, kicked very well, actually. Which, uh, especially the high ball. Like, England really yeah. struggled. Uh, New Zealand hadn't really tried that that much. But uh, they made up a lot of grounds by doing that. Well, at no uh, so, point did our backs look comfortable jumping in the air and challenging for, as yeah. you say, the high kicks. Uh, you were uh, confident that South Africa were going to win those every time. Yeah, and it's it's a cheap way to win ground, really. I mean, it's just a hoof up the pitch. Really. I mean, there's more to it than that. But, but such a simplistic and, 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 and effective way it turned out to be. Yeah, and it's just who wants it more. And it looked like South Africa did. Uh, um, they looked but, like they wanted everything more, didn't they? Yeah, and it's good. And, yeah, they did. And as good as they were... Yeah, like you said, England did not help themselves. The amount of passes thrown out of play, missing their man. I think it was, yeah, part South Africa brilliance, but also part England's not playing anywhere near the level they achieved in their semi-final. Do you think, Josh, that the blame falls on the players or do you think it falls on Eddie Jones? He was quite cutting about Warren Gatland and quite um, arrogant about England's position in that World Cup final. Do you think he thought that because they'd beaten New Zealand that they were dead cert to beat um, South Africa? Or do you think the players kind of kind of let him down in a way? I think, I think I would put it more on the players. I think Eddie Jones is someone who has a very distinct plan for every team. That was very clear from the New Zealand game. And I, I don't think the players executed the plan I think they got drawn into South Africa's way of playing they tried to kind of match them physically and they came up short one stat that really surprised me was that South Africa came in 20 kilos lighter than the England team yeah yeah you would not think that from the kind of the turnovers lost every single scrum it felt I think almost all of them and just every um, every time we tried to mount an attack, there was just an absolute green wall in front of in front of the kind of the kind of forward motion. Um, I, I, there was that kind of moment at the end of the first half. I think was it twenty five phases. Um, yeah, we, we were so close to the line as well. Try line. It was obscenely good defence. I cannot believe they pushed us back what ten fifteen meters when we were. It must have been centimeters. Away. It, it really was. We were so close. And the likes of Tuolagi, um, the, the Vonipola brothers, they they were pushing. And then we decided to switch it and, and kind of give it to our backs. And it just wasn't going to work. We, we think- couldn't get through. And, and I feel like we, couldn't, we didn't adapt at any point on the field. 
there was no adaptation of our of our tactics. The the South Africans were so fierce, so good in the tackle, so strong in the defence. They kept putting so much pressure on. As Chris said, the kicking was such a big element of of South Africa's win, and we didn't adapt. We didn't change our game plan even though it wasn't working, even though we weren't on top for much of the game, we didn't change anything. And I think that's where we lost it. We, we didn't adapt on the field to, to, to our opponent and, and, and kind of learn their weaknesses and, and get past them. But as, well as, that. Hand, as Chris said, there was that South Africa were brilliant and they, 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 they put their game plan in place and they executed it to perfection. Sorry, Josh, go on. I was just, just going to say, as well as that kind of lack of adapting and just letting South Africa play how they wanted to. Anytime we're three points behind, because um, in the first half, it was reasonably close at certain points. We just yeah. seemed to hand the initiative straight back. It would be a handling error. We'd just give them territory really easily. It just felt like a lack of concentration sometimes. It was almost as if England felt, well, you know, we've beaten New Zealand. We should be able to beat South Africa so we can kind of afford to have a bit of a lapse here. And just South Africa were having none of it. They gained the territory and just kicked penalties in all day long and then just ran away with it at the end, I felt. Yeah, there wasn't enough like scoreboard pressure, as you say, because funny things happen if a team gets ahead or behind. So if we had got level with them or the occasion which you just mentioned where we were camped on the trial line but couldn't get over, if we had got over, that might have put South Africa under a bit more scoreboard pressure and then they might have altered how they played. they might have panicked slightly or tried to change things to get that up and might not have gone the way it went. Um, so, yeah, they were opportunities missed um, as well. What happened with that try that was the first South African try? Because I was watching it in the, <laughs> in the pub and it seemed like it was ruled out and then seemed to be ruled in again. So Did I you... think they, they were they were focusing on whether it was a forward pass, right. first of all. So the first one was whether it was a forward pass and they decided it wasn't. It was really close. It could have easily gone the other way. And then they were looking to see whether the South African kicker was in front of the the runner, basically. Oh, offside. And again, which was really close. He wasn't offside. He was just behind the the kicker and then passed it back and and they went over the try line. Ah, Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I mean, you've talked about South Africa slightly, Chris. How much praise do you think... um, South Africa deserve for the win. I mean, we're focused on England. We're focused on the poor performance. There were so many handling errors, so many knock-ons, so many awful passes. <laughs> but was that England's kind of almost naivety, but also the pressure, or was that because of South Africa and the way they kind of attacked the game? Uh, I think, yeah, it's a good point you made there, Dan. I think there's two parts to it. I think, I think the parts where... It was a physical contest. Um, so the scrums, um, the malls, uh, anything at the breakdown, and South Africa turning it over through um, good rooking and uh, yeah, winning clean turnovers. I think that sort of stuff, and, and the tries they scored, which were well worked, you have to say that's South African credit. The parts, though, where in very low-pressure situations or open field, where we were just looping it out of play, missing yeah. our man, knocking it I don't think you can really say that's down to South African pressure. That Those incidents come down to, yeah, like you say, whatever, poor form, lack of concentration, pressure of the occasion getting to them, those sort of things. So I think they're it's important that. to separate these two. Uh, and and I think they're both contributed to the, wit, to, uh, the loss for England and the win for, for South Africa. 
And, and obviously, we, we can't we can't ever experience what it's like to play in something like a, a World Cup final. However, we <laughs> have all played sporting occasions where we have felt pressure, and it yeah. it does change how you perform. It does change what you do. It does change the, the 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 small moments. Do you think that that's a massive thing for the England players that they got to that position, did so well to win the the semi final, and then felt the pressure? Well, potentially because New Zealand have. They had, like we said on last week's podcast, they hadn't lost a game at a World Cup for 12 years. They are, or at the time, were the number one ranked team in the world. They're historically the best rugby playing nation in the world. So to beat them, I think you can justify, justifiably think after that, well, we can beat anyone. We've beaten the best team. Uh, and whether that contributes to the performance on Saturday, partly. I don't know. Maybe they were too relaxed, possibly. I don't know. Well, it certainly didn't look like that on the pitch. So maybe, <laughs> so maybe not. But yeah, yeah, it's difficult. I don't know. We, we can't really know what, what the players were thinking individually. Maybe it'll come out after the game uh, and in the weeks to come, really. So no, I don't know. What, what do you it, think? It's, it's really difficult, isn't it? You, you don't know whether it's tactical you don't know whether i agree with josh i think it's the players on the pitch that that made mistakes that could have changed the course of the game that that kind of handed it back to news uh, to south africa sorry every time it looked like we were kind of closing the gap and I, and i think that eddie jones can't do much about that but as the head coach he should be kind of going and 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 teaching the players how to adapt if things aren't going their way, and, and, and they didn't, they didn't adapt at all to it. I'm just going to bring you, Josh, um, to the South Africa captain. Now, Kalisi uh, is the first um, black South African captain to lift the World Cup. How much, how good, how great do you think that is for the, for the country of South Africa? Um, I mean, knowing how big the image was in 1995 with, with Nelson Mandela and uh, South Africa winning the the World Cup and it being handed to then Captain Pinar. They even made a film about it, Invictus. Um, and it was such a big moment in South African history. And now we've got another massive moment with, as I said, the first black South African captain to lift the World Cup. How, how big do you think it is for the country? I think it's absolutely huge. Um, and I think Pinar himself has said that this is a bigger achievement than the 95 World Cup. It's... It's about kind of a nation coming together, really. In '95, um, there was it, it was seen as a kind of elitist sport because, of course, black players weren't allowed to be in the rugby team um, in the apartheid era. And at that time, there hadn't been enough time to kind of have a, a group of black players kind of come through because, you know, why would they have been training? Why would they even even have kind of tried to play rugby at all? So to have, you know, in a in 20 years that that kind of progress is is absolutely incredible and it's no longer just seen as a white sport it's it's a really mixed team you saw the kind of passion in the kind of belting out of the of the national anthem which by the way is probably the best national anthem in the world just saying <laughs> brilliant um, i i can't i don't think you can overstate how much how much joy it's kind of brought south africa um people kind of dancing in the street and i, I don't think um, in 95 that it did I don't think it was seen as a sport for everybody but this time it certainly has with Khaleesi as captain yeah and I, I, during the research that I know we all do for the podcast I read a brilliant piece by Tom Fordyce on BBC Sports and I'm just going to read you this um, 
this little segment of it. And he, and he says, a kid from the townships who was born with nothing, whose parents were too young and too poor to raise him, and so entrusted him to his grandmother. A rugby obsessive who played without kit, whose mother died when he was 15, and whose grandmother died in his arms a few months later. I mean, what an incredible story. Um, what an incredible life he must have led. Um, but also what an incredible inspiration to other people of South Africa, but not just South Africa, other people in po the poorest parts of the world who can look at him as an inspiration and say, I can be that person someday. I don't have to have everything given to me. I can work for it and I can get to that point. And he must surely go on to inspire so many, so many people who have been told they can't do something. And he is living proof that you can and anybody can if they are at least at some points given the opportunity to do so and and being given the the honor and privilege to be south african captain and being entrusted with that role must have been massive for him but for them to see him lift the world cup must have been massive as you said josh for the for the country of south africa and i and i, and I, I don't know what you think about that chris do you think that it's that it's even more as josh said even more momentous than than the image of of uh, Mandela celebrating with Pinar? Um, well, I think it's like, well, you, you've spoken very eloquently on it yourself. Um, I think that image is so famous because of Mandela's obviously imprisonment for so many years and then to almost miraculously emerge against what it looked like for a long time against the odds to then to hand over that trophy. I think we're seen as a, a symbology of a newly united South Africa, which had been through a period of political turmoil and obviously apartheid and everything that that brought. So I think that is very powerful image in itself. But yeah, this almost continues that on and is and is just as powerful to see. It's almost like the natural progression from the next step from that '95 um, win. So yeah, I hope it has the uh, same inspirational effect that uh, Mandela has had for so many people. Yeah, and 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 what a, a brilliant story for him. Now, that's when this is section. I just want to get your thoughts on the, not necessarily the game, because I don't know many people that watch the New Zealand Wales game, but the concept of a of a third place playoff. Josh, what do you think? There's any point because they're so dejected about not making the final. They're not going to play their best. They don't really care if they finish third. Do you think there's any point in the game? Wouldn't you just rather, if you're in that position, go home and be with your family and kind of regroup and, and recollect? I would almost answer it with another question. Do you remember a single third place playoff match? Are they are they The ever... only one I can remember is the Belgium-England one. And that was, I, we didn't, I didn't even watch it. I think me and Chris actually that day were at a corfball tournament in Leicester. Um, um, yes, on, we were. On, on the day of that. <laughs> None of, none of us watched it. We didn't care. The England players probably didn't really care. What's the point? So, in a word, no. I don't think there's a point. <laughs> I think Chris? that match actually, Dan, the one you just mentioned there, I think Belgium seemed to take it quite seriously because they had an open-top bus parade, didn't they? I think that might have been just because that was the furthest Belgium have ever got at a tournament, whether it be third or fourth. Um, but I think for some nations... They see it as oh we're on the podium now, sort of thing. So it's some, it was, it was some called, of, I think it was called the the Bronze World Cup match. This one was yeah. Sweet on yeah. ITV with with New Zealand and Wales, and yeah. I just thought 
the, like, well, I was I was away in, in Devon at the time and it was on in the bar. Nobody was watching it. Nobody cared. No. I think I, ju- more- I, ju- I just think I think it's worse for the players because they have to stay around having not made the World Cup and play another game that yeah. they're not really bothered about playing most of the time. No. I think it the smaller your nation or the more unlikely you are to have made the semi finals, the more they take it seriously, I think. Yeah, but I can if- see that. <laughs> but but yeah, I don't think anyone would particularly mourn it if they abolished it at all the tournaments, really. Uh, well, uh, especially for the two teams that ended up playing the game, because Wales and New Zealand both had yeah. serious ambitions to win the World Cup. They, yeah. they, didn't, they didn't want to come yeah. to the World Cup and finish third. No, no. Imagine if you got injured playing in that sort of match. You'd be oh, furious. Yeah, you would. You'd be like, I've just, basically, uh, an, an upgraded friendly, and I've yeah. got injured. Yeah. Yeah, uh, the, I, the, the I, la- I the last thing that's received a bit of, not abuse, but a bit of negative attention, and I want your thoughts on it, Josh, and this is the last point um, of this section because we need to move on, but a lot of people negatively talking about the England players who did not want to wear their um, second-place medals and took them off and just held them in their hand. For me, I don't see a problem. Those players want to win. And then they don't want to come second. They're not proud of coming second because they went in there wanting to win. Lots of people, and, and, and I always relate this back to football because that's the sport I, I enjoy the most. Lots of people who've lost in big finals openly admit they've got no idea where their loser's medal is. What do you make of the England players kind of almost refusing to wear their medals? I, I completely agree with you, Dan. I think it's almost like uh, I don't want it. You know, if you'd said to me, uh, OK, I've lost the final but please don't make me come up and parade because all you're doing is parading that I've lost. I'd completely understand and and I do understand. So no, I, I don't see a problem with it at all. And I think in the past, it wasn't always the case that you had to go up and get your, your runners up medal. You know, I, I have, they, I'm not aware that they've always had them. And I, I, to be honest, it does make you think, well, some people might treasure them. Maybe if that's the only medal they ever win, but for a lot of people, um, especially an England team with pretensions to win the tournament and were the favourites to win the match, um, I can see why it would be, uh, you know, something you don't care about that you're embarrassed by. I think it's that pure desire to win um, coming through. So, no, I, I, I don't really understand the abuse. It's not ingratitude at all. They didn't ask for a runners-up medal. It's just their kind of will to win. Yeah, and, and, and to be a sportsman of that calibre, you have to be a serial winner. And I think that's all it was. So I don't really understand the abuse either. But that's all by the by. The only thing left to say is congratulations to South Africa. You were the better team and you did deserve to win the Rugby World Cup. Now, our last section before the brilliant sports quiz is... The time section and it's back for one week only it might be back in another few weeks time who knows but there were two things that we all really wanted to talk about so the only fair way to do it was give chris and josh a tiny little segment to talk about their let's say expert topics now chris is going to go first he's going to have three minutes to talk about the f1 a little bit about uh, the race from the weekend but more so about lewis hamilton as he has just won his sixth championship title and then after that, we're going to look at some questions and then Josh is going to be given three minutes to talk about the WTA f- finals and the record prize money. 
Um, and then we'll ask him some questions about that. So, Chris, are you ready for your three-minute time section? Yes, I am. Excellent news. So, when I say go, you will start. Then, when you hear this sound, and hopefully it will come, when you hear this sound, you will stop talking, okay? Yeah. So, Chris, your three minutes to talk about F1, Lewis Hamilton, the season in general. It's a lot to talk about in three minutes. Starts now. Okay, so we had the US Grand Prix at the weekend, um, which was won by Valtteri Bottas for Mercedes. Uh, pretty dominant performance from, from Bottas. He uh, took the lead at the... Well, he started from pole and just led from there onwards, really. He did have to get past Hamilton a few laps from the end. Uh, to claim it, but with Hamilton on all tyres, it was fairly straightforward pass for him. Um, so a, a very deserved win for Valtteri. But yes, the story really is all about Lewis Hamilton, who claimed his sixth title by claiming second place behind Bottas. Um, a good drive from Hamilton. He had to come through from fifth, immediately dispatched the Ferraris, and then later on got ahead of uh, Verstappen in the pit stops. Um, to take that, uh, third place was Verstappen, uh, and then a very distant fourth was Leclerc. The Ferrari's really not performing well this weekend, a bit mysteriously after three strong races up until that point. But yeah, so Hamilton has his sixth title. It's been it's been an interesting season. The first half of the season, his title really is built on what he achieved in the first half of the season, where Mercedes were fairly dominant. Everyone thought Ferrari were going to be brilliant at the start, uh, but after their testing form, but they didn't show that in the first part of the season. Um, and I think there was a one-two for Mercedes in the first five or six races, which really established his championship lead. Um, mid-season, Red Bull came into it a bit more. Verstappen claimed a couple of wins, and it looked like they were going to uh, to threaten Hamilton for the second half of the season, albeit it would have to be a big turnaround from Verstappen. He was quite a lot of points behind at that point. But then their challenge fell away. And then Ferrari stepped, came to the fore with some fantastic performances, winning three or four races in a row. Uh, but their drivers, again, they were too far behind to really change the championship contention. So Mercedes were overall the most dominant. And there was just these spells where they were challenged in, in succession by Red Bull. One minute well. left. OK, but not consistent enough to... Uh, so we always had a big cushion. So I think we knew it was more a case of when rather than if Hamilton was going to claim this title. But his sixth one, I think, will rank quite special to him. He's now only one away from Schumacher's record, which he already said today, actually, that he's going to go for. So no chance of Hamilton retiring yet. Um, it's not as dramatic as his first title or having to fight with Ros Rosberg, where there was a lot of psychological warfare. I think he's really benefiting from... Bottas as a teammate in that I think he knows he can beat him really and that just gets Hamilton into a pretty happy place where he's fairly confident and comfortable and can drive well um, I think next season will be different I think Ferraris and Red Bull will continue their development which should lead to a bit more of a competitive season next year which is what I'm certainly hoping for but but all uh, credit for Hamilton for beating can he beat what's in front of you which is what he achieved this season Wow, Chris, that was that was some good talking for that three minutes. Uh, and it felt like you were coming to the end of it anyway. I thought it was a natural conclusion. Um, just a few I've questions. I've got an amazing Chris. body clock. So, uh... <laughs> just, I can tell exactly what three minutes is at all times during the day. Um, do you think Chris is going to beat... Because surely he's going to beat Schumacher's record of seven. 
He's looking. Yeah, I think he. I think he probably will. I think Mercedes are just such an operationally tight team. They just don't leave anything on the table. I think there's been times this season, as I mentioned in my little piece there, Ferrari have been quicker for the last few races. There were times earlier in the season where Red Bull were quicker around mid-season, but especially and especially Ferrari, they Ferrari thrown away so many races this year. But Mercedes, I don't think, have thrown any away other than when the weather conditions have sort of gone against them. When it's been a normal sort of race, as most of them have been, they've just been fantastic all the way through, really. And it takes a lot to get past such a slick, well-run team, really. So I think Ferrari or Red Bull or whoever else would have to build a car that's a lot quicker than Mercedes to get past them, because I think the other parts of their running wouldn't match what Mercedes are capable of. So I think all that means that uh, Hamilton... And, and another point, and Ferrari, they're fight, the two drivers are fighting each other and taking points off each other all the time, whereas Hamilton has generally got that little bit of a gap on Bottas. So he's just accumulating more points and having the enjoying the status of a number one desi- uh, designated driver, which means you can hoover up more points than the other guys can. So it just mathematically makes sense as well, I think. And it almost seems like Bottas is fairly happy with being a, a second driver and, and and kind of being a good teammate to Hamilton and making yeah. sure that he's fulfilling his objective and making sure the team in general wins the uh, wins the championships, uh, wins the team championship, I should say. Um, yeah. This is Hamilton's third consecutive title. Do you think, obviously you've said a lot about it there, one word, do you think you will make it four? Four in a row, I should say. Yeah. Yeah, I think he will make it four. The year after that, yeah. that'll get more difficult. Yeah. And and it'll be interesting to see whether, because I think he will get to Schumacher's record, I think he will surpass it. It'll be interesting to see that when he does surpass it, or if he does surpass it, I should say, whether he then chooses that moment to retire, which could in theory be in two years if the other if the other um, teams don't kind of book their ideas up a little bit. Now, when yeah. you look at all the um, the stats, between him and Schumacher... It's between one of those two as possibly the best driver ever. Josh, do you think that Schumacher is still the best F1 driver ever? Do you think that Hamilton will at some point overtake him and, and kind of take his crown? Or or do you think Schumacher is safe at the top? I think you with kind of when you're comparing two drivers, you have to look purely numerically for me. So at the moment, Schumacher's better. And that's the only metric I can kind of use. But I, I do think Hamilton will uh, will overtake him ultimately. And I think he's come from such humble roots to think now that how much money you must have to spend to to get even to like an amateur sort of level, even to get to like Formula 3, Formula 2. And to think he comes from Stevenage, as we know from the quiz. Stevenage. Uh, yeah, indeed. And from like quite a, you know, uh, a kind of humble family to, to think of ways risen, it's it might be that numerically Schumacher is better, but you feel that the kind of the struggles that Hamilton's had to go through are are much, much more kind of significant. Yeah. And it's also worth noting that Schumacher himself was um, five years consecutively a champion. Um, Lewis is currently five out of six years. So on, in that regard... Schumacher is um, slightly ahead. Um, Hamilton's ahead, way ahead in pole positions. So 
converting those pole positions to Grand Prix wins. Maybe that's something that Schumacher slightly um, improves or is slightly better in than, than Hamilton. It's, it, but to me, I think that Hamilton should go down at least as one of the very best of all time and will, and will go down as that, despite the fact he may never get that recognition in England um, as one of English one of England's greatest ever sports people. But who knows? Maybe you will. Maybe you'll get that recognition after he's retired when people just realise just how good he is. Now, Josh, we come to you. Are you ready for your timed three-minute talk about the WTA finals? I'm going to set myself one too so I can panic as I watch it go down. Oh, that's, I think that's called cheating. You, you're not allowed, Josh. You can't. Okay, uh, okay. You can't, you know what? It'll only make allowed. me panic. It's off. It's yeah, off. trust yourself. You'll be fantastic. So, um, I'm going to set the timer in a second. You're going to talk about the WTA finals, the record prize. Give us your verdict on it and you will be brilliant. Josh, are you ready? I'm ready. You will start in three Two, one, go. So last week saw the WTA Tour Finals. So the eight best players in women's tennis played for a record prize pot, not just in women's tennis, but in men's as well. Um, £10.8 million pounds, uh, to be shared amongst the eight of them, of which £3.4 million went to the winner. So just for some kind of context, that's about half a million more than the US Open, which is the highest paid Grand Slam. So Ash Barty was the winner um, and it was a week marked by injuries more than anything else. So uh, Naomi Osaka, Australian Open champion, she retired um, in her second match, I believe. Um, and then uh, Andreescu, the US Open champion, she retired through injury. Then the alternate, so someone who'd come in to replace Osaka, Kiki Burton's retired, um, so somehow um, managing to retire when being a substitute. And then Belinda Bencic retired in the semifinals. So it kind of brought into relief the uh, the long tennis year for kind of both women's and men's tennis. It kind of, it almost seems a shame that the showpiece has to come so late in the year that players are tired they're carrying injuries already and it almost seems rather than a sprint to the finish it's sort of a a hobble but ultimately uh, it was uh, kind of resolved by a, a brilliant final um ash barty who's had a difficult couple of months um but has kind of secured um world number one and won the whole tournament and won 3.4 million pounds uh, with a fantastic victory over Alina uh, Svitolina, who was the reigning champion, with some brilliant play. She's a, a kind of all-court player, something which women's tennis, perhaps five, ten years ago, didn't really have. There were lots of power players kind of trying to match Serena and really struggling, but Barty can slice, she can come to the net. She's got an amazing forehand too. Um, it's a One really exciting time for women's tennis. So... You've got Ash Barty, who's won the Australian, sorry, the French Open and the WTA finals this year. You've got Andreescu, who's won the US Open, and you've got Simona Halep, who won the who won Wimbledon. So next year, you've got an incredible kind of group of players, even without mentioning Serena, who are going to be fighting it out right at the top. All of whom have really interesting styles of real variety. I would say with kind of complete confidence that women's tennis is in a better place than men's tennis at the minute in that it's got a kind of group of young players who are kind of challenging the kind of current crop um, 
to for kind of competition right at the top with Ashbarty leading the way at the moment but it could well be that Andreescu takes the top takes the top prize and then Serena Williams it kind of shows the extent to which women's tennis is the strength and depth of women's tennis at the minute that Serena Williams kind of record of grand slams is barely being spoken about yet that's still to come next year as well so we have uh Brilliant women's tennis to look forward to next year. And we also have, in a couple of weeks, the men's World Tour finals, in which we have the kind of three stalwarts of the sport, Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer, kind of fighting it out for what seems like the 200th time um, to see who can top that particular World Tour finals. For, interestingly, there's less amount of money for the first time ever, it, it seems. Very and interesting, like but it's kind of see, kind of see, shows where the the women's game has mm. has gone. Um, now, Josh, I, I did let you talk for a, for a bit longer because you were you were very entertaining, and so <laughs> you, you I had think about I'd, um, I'd gone on too long. You had about fifteen seconds longer than Chris, but <laughs> that was it was very good. Same again, Josh. I'm I'm I'm, I'm mightily impressed, and I don't think I'll ever take my turn back in the timed events because you two are absolutely killing it. Um, now, Josh, is it made even more impressive by? Because am I right in thinking that Ash Barty left the game for 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 a short period in two thousand and fourteen? Yeah. Um, is it even more impressive where she's ended back up? Um, because she always had the ability to do so, didn't she? Yeah, she was always really talented, and she's always had kind of the tools in her game. So she's always had the slice. She's played doubles for many years, so she's always been really good at the net. Um, but it's kind of, I feel like the key in tennis is being able to deploy those tools at the right time and being obviously consistent enough to be able to call on them when you absolutely need them. And yeah, to take time away from the game when she was only kind of in her late teens um, and to, I mean, I'd love to be able to do this myself, but to just go and play a different sport and go and play 2020 in Australia for a couple of years, which must have been really fun. And uh she actually left because she felt that tennis was a bit lonely. She felt that kind of going on the tour um, kind of all year, really, not really having a chance to see your family very much, just traveling around with your coach all the time. Doing that as a kind of a young woman or young man even uh, is tough. And I feel that maybe the big bash helped her. Team sport, just have a bit of fun while you're young. And to it's so impressive how she's come back and after saying tennis is a lonely sport to come back and say, well, um, it might be, might be difficult for me, but I've found a way to make it work in the most, in the best way possible by winning uh, two tournaments and becoming world number one, two uh, kind of big tournaments, I should say. Yeah. And she has had a brilliant year, the French open Birmingham title to be world number one, as you said, finishing the world's top player, winning the WTA finals and her debut on her debut basically in the in the event and being the first australian to win the wta tour finals since 1976 i mean wow she must be loving 2019 indeed and uh i feel like australian tennis has been in a bit of a rut for a while um you've had kind of nick kyrgios who we've spoken about previously who despite his entertainment value hasn't really threatened to kind of really fulfill his talent completely and really since you know Leighton Hewitt, Sam Stoza won a, a Grand Slam, but then really faded. Um, but since I feel Leighton Hewitt, really, they haven't had a consistent person right at the top of the rankings. Ash Barty's um, doing a great job for Australian sport, really. Absolutely. And 
It just leaves me to say well done to Ash Barty on a brilliant achievement. Well done to Lewis Hamilton. And fingers crossed they both get more in the future. Right, it's that time for my favourite part of each podcast. I've been excited about it all week. Shows how sad I am, really, to be honest, rather than anything else. And it's time for the quiz. And it's this week. It's time for Chris's quiz. Chris, have you provided a suitably challenging, not challenging quiz, hopefully, for for me and Josh today? I think it's, well, as is my sort of just, I'm adopting this as my theme, multiple choice again. But um, right. this time, I don't think it's quite as devilish as last time was. <laughs> there's, so there's no um, dissertation questions <laughs> there's no about Dina Asher-Smith. <laughs> that was the, that was awful. I can't believe you gave that question. And I, I think feel like we might have got one of them right, but I don't know. But oh, what a question. Um, well. Go down in uh, folklore. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely will. But without further ado, Chris, we may as well get on with it because I'm super excited. So, Chris, when you're ready, off you go. Okay. Okay. So, question one. Um, it was a footballing question, and it goes like this: Liverpool and Arsenal uh, produced a very unusual scoreline in the League Cup this week, which we touched on earlier. Five all. Um, there's been more than ten thousand games in the Premier League, yet only one of them has finished five all. What was that fixture? So, your options are: Arsenal five, Liverpool five, Portsmouth five, Reading five. Everton 5, Aston Villa 5, or West Brom 5, Manchester United 5? I think I actually know that one, so I'm quite happy about that. Okay. And it's uh, possible, Chris, I'd like to... What was the second one, Chris? Pardon? What was was, um, answer B? Answer B was Portsmouth 5, Reading 5. Oh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) If possible, afterwards, Chris, I'd like to test my sporting knowledge and go through the the results of those games that you may have been thinking of. Wow. Okay, yeah, that's a good little side, yeah, side game. No bonus points, though. Let's get that. Uh, no, 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 no bonus points. It's just for my self-esteem yeah. and ego. <laughs> <laughs> have you got an answer, Josh? I've yeah. got one, yeah. Oh, sorry. yeah. Also. Good stuff. Right, question two. This is a rugby question. Slightly unusual, this one. Uh, what routine does South Africa rugby coach uh, Razi Erasmus change every time that his team loses? Option A, he listens to <laughs> you like this. He listens to good vi- <laughs> he listens to good vibrations by the Beach Boys thirty six times to regain my spirit. Wow. Option B, he writes a song about the defeat on his ukulele. Option C. He only drinks non-alcoholic beer until he wins again. Or option D, uh, he ditches one lucky white shirt and starts wearing a new one. I mean, the big thing about this is that you've made up three of those options. And so <laughs> your mind, wow. It is fertile imagination. Um, uh, which one was C again? Uh... Sorry. Uh, C was he only drinks non non yeah he only drinks non alcoholic beer until he wins again. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a toughie. That is a tricky question. <laughs> Josh, you got an answer? I've got one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Move on to the next one. 
again, it's a football one, but this one comes from a little bit further afield than the last one. And the question is, uh, Robert Lewandowski set a new record this week by scoring in Bayern Munich's first nine league games of the season. Uh, who held the record before this season uh, by scoring eight straight games at the start of the season? So was it Roberto Firmino, uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, uh, Gerd Muller or Edin Dzeko? How's your German knowledge, lads? <laughs> Should be better. Um, <laughs> can you give the options again, please? Yeah, yeah. The options are Roberto Firmino. Uh, that's option A. Option B, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. Option C, Gerd Muller. And option D, Edin Dzeko. I strongly disagree that this isn't devilish. This is pretty devilish. Ah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right, okay. Okay. Josh, you ready for question four? Um, yeah, ready for four. Okay, so the next one is sort of rugby, but also sort of general sport. But you'll see what happens anyway. So the question is, the uh, Rugby World Cup final uh, was the most watched British television event of the year, uh, recording 12.8 million viewers. Uh, but what did it, what sporting event did it knock off the previous top spot, if that makes sense. So basically, what's the second most watched event of the year now? So is it A, the Wimbledon men's final, uh, B, the Women's World Cup semi-final, uh, which was England against USA? Uh, option C, is it the Cricket World Cup final? Obviously, England against uh, New Zealand. Or option D, the FA Cup final between Man City and Watford. I should add, actually... <laughs> Question A was between uh, Djokovic and Federer. The thing you've got to think about there is that some of these were not on terrestrial TV. So therefore could have played a part. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think I've got an answer. Josh, uh, helping Josh out there. Do you feel you feeling sorry? Sorry, sorry Josh, I apologise. I, no, I, I knew that too. I just uh, <laughs> didn't want to give it away to you. Cards <laughs> close to the chest. You got an answer, lads. I've yeah. got one, yeah. I okay. could have just picked any. I've got no idea, but yeah, cool. <laughs> okay, and the final question. Uh, Formula One. Lewis Hamilton is the most successful British driver of all time with six world titles now. But who is our second most successful? Is it A, Damon Hill, B, Graham Hill, his father, C, Nigel Mansell, or D, Jackie Stewart? Is that successful in terms of championships won? In terms of championship titles won, yes. Okay. I think I know that one. How are you, Josh? Oh, this has gone really badly. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm still... Um, question four is really annoying me because I feel like I've read it somewhere. Same. Oh. Yeah, I'm exactly the same about question four. And I've just put any old answer, but I feel like... I think I feel like it's between two. Could you? Would you mind, Chris, reading out all of the question fours again? Because I'm definitely going to just change it to something else random. Okay. Uh, so, do you just want the answers? Yeah. Yeah, just the answers. Four answers. So, option A is the Wimbledon men's final between Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer. Option B is the women's World Cup semi-final uh, featuring England against the United States of America. 
Question C, sorry, answer C is the Cricket World Cup final between England and New Zealand. And option D is the FA Cup final between Manchester City and Watford. Okay, thank you. No, I'm going to stick. I'll stick. <laughs> okay. Are you, are you ready for the answers? Uh, yeah, ready for the sure. answers. Right. And, oh yeah, on question one, Dan, we'll do that side game as well. Yeah, cool. We'll get our answers first. <laughs> yes. Tell and us we'll... whether you think we're right and then whether we are right. And then I'll go through the side answers. Yeah, cool. So question one featured the League Cup match between Liverpool and Arsenal, which finished 5 all. Uh, but only one Premier League fixture has ever finished 5-all. What was the fixture? The options were Arsenal against Liverpool, Portsmouth against Reading, Everton against Aston Villa, or West Brom against Manchester United. Dan, what answer have you gone for? I've gone for West Brom, Manchester United. OK. Josh, what have you gone for? I've gone for Portsmouth versus Reading. OK. Well, one of you's got it right. And it's Dan. And it's done. <laughs> so that was the game that was Sir Alex Ferguson's last game in charge. Yes. And Lukaku scored a hat trick for for West Brom. Yeah. Um, and it was yeah five all by the end of it. Yeah, I'm pretty know. sure the Arsenal Liverpool one was four all. Yeah. And Arshavin scored forward in the four goals, I think. Yeah, and did that cheeky little four celebration. That's correct. Yeah. Um, the Villa Everton one was three all, I think, and I, I think I went to the game. I was, at oh, the right. game, I, think. I was at the game at Goodison Park and we went 3-1 okay. ahead and they, they levelled back. If that was the game you were thinking of, I'm not sure. Yeah. Potentially. And I feel like the Portsmouth-Reading one, was that the one where, with the, the clip with Chris Kamara, where he doesn't know whether a player's got sent off or not? Uh, on Sky Sports News. I, I can't remember. Cool. But the match finished... Was it like 7-4 or something? 7-4 to Portsmouth, yeah. Yeah, I thought And it I think Dave Pitson scored a brace for Reading. And I think, well, everyone scored for Portsmouth, I think. Matt Taylor, maybe? <laughs> yeah. Probably scored a spectacular goal. He seems Almost to like certainly that. a spectacular one, yeah. Yeah, really, uh, yeah good knowledge. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, one point to Dan there. So, I move on to question two. Yeah. So, this was the rugby question with the, yeah, interesting answers that I gave <laughs> oh, you there. Uh, so, <laughs> So what routine does the South African rugby coach Razi Erasmus change every time his team loses? Uh, listen to Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys 36 times. Uh, writing a song about the defeat on his ukulele. Uh, drinking non-alcoholic beer until he wins again. Or ditching one lucky white shirt and starting to wear a new one. Uh, come to Josh first. Josh, what do you go for? I've gone for A, purely on the basis that 36 times is pretty specific. I've gone for that. <laughs> Okay, uh, Dan? The 36 times is exactly why I didn't go for A because I thought Chris would just put something really specific <laughs> in there. <laughs> so I went for C, the non-alcoholic beer. Well, guys, you're both incorrect. Oh, oh. No. It was, he ditches a lucky white shirt and starts wearing a new oh, one. Oh, scribbled really? it out. That That's seemed too crazy. sensible. <laughs> Absolutely got crazy. Chris, what is your mind? Brilliant. <laughs> It's warped. <laughs> okay, I'll move swiftly on then to uh, question three, which featured the Bundesliga. So, oh, sorry, well, I've lost it. There we go. Um, so Lewandowski set a new record this week by scoring in Bayern Munich's first nine league games of the season. But who held the record before this season by scoring in eight? Uh, the options were Berto Firmino, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, Ged Muller or Edin Dzeko. 
Josh again, what have you gone for? I've gone for Abamyang. I've and also Ab- gone for Abamyang. And you're both correct. Well done. Ah, on the board, thank goodness. <laughs> it's good to get one in there, isn't it? It is. I was like, it can't be Ed and Jacko. And if it was, I was going to just end the call now and, and <laughs> end the podcast early. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't tell you how many he scored consecutively, but uh, not eight anyway. Uh, so question four was sort of on many sports, really, potentially. Um, but the question went, the Rugby World Cup final was the most watched British TV event of the year with 12.8 million viewers. Uh, but what was the most watched sporting event of 2019 before that? Uh, so the options were A, the Wimbledon men's final between Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer. Option B was the Women's World Cup semi-final between England and the USA. Option C was the Cricket World Cup final between England and New Zealand. And option D was the FA Cup final between Manchester City and Watford. Dan, what do you go for? I changed this answer three times. <laughs> so I, I wasn't sure whether it was the England Women's World Cup semi or the England Cricket World Cup final. Yeah. And so I just plucked for the England Cricket World Cup final because I thought, it. I, I mean, I watched it. I watched both, actually, but I don't, I don't know. It's, it was one of those, but I went for the World Cup final. The Cricket World Cup final, I should say. Yeah, yeah, OK. And um, Josh? So I was torn between uh, Wimbledon final and women's semi-final, and I went for Wimbledon. Well, both of you were on the right answer at one point. But oh, you know, no. It was a women's World Cup semi-final. Oh, no. That <laughs> changed it so badly. That makes you feel even worse, doesn't it, when you had it your... Does, yeah. And so what happened there was, I think you talked about possible reasons. That one was on BBC, and I'm pretty sure it didn't clash with anything. Whereas the Cricket World Cup final and the men's... Wimbledon men's final yeah, they clashed, didn't at they? the same time and they took loads of viewers off each other so they both oh, ended up I see. I'd right. forgotten both... about that oh of course they did because I was listening to the radio at the same time that was crazy yeah and there was also the British Grand Prix going on at the same time as well but <laughs> that almost certainly didn't get the most viewers yeah. no but it, but they were all taking taking oh viewers. yeah great point yeah. And then the FA Cup final was just in the middle of summer on a hot day and I think everyone was out of the pub and no one so, cared yeah and it was all over after 10 minutes anyway, wasn't it? Yeah. I'm so annoyed at myself for not remembering <laughs> that they happened at the same time. I'm, so I'm livid. Oh. I can remember pointless football results from years ago, but I can't remember that. <laughs> oh, what you were you doing know. two months ago? Yeah. Honestly, yeah. I watched it. I was there watching it. And I think I was I think I was doing the anti what you were doing, Josh, watching the cricket and listening to the tennis. <laughs> ah, well. There you go. And the final question. Um which concerned Formula One and Lewis Hamilton is the most successful UK driver of all time with six <coughs> world titles. <coughs> but who is our second most successful driver in terms of titles? Was it A, Damon Hill, B, Graham Hill, C, Nigel Mansell, or D, Becky Stewart's? Josh, who'd you go for? I've gone for D, which is a guess. Okay, Dan? Um, I'm pretty sure I read this in my research and I went for Jackie Stewart's. Well, one of you got there by research, one by guessing, but you're both correct. Yes. <laughs> Doesn't matter how right. you score, Josh, as long as they, they get it. As long as there's points on the board, Josh, you can score them any which way you want. So, what so, were you scoring on the daughter, guys? 
I got three. Yeah. And I got two. Josh, yeah. Right, so okay. let me update the scores then. It was a great quiz, Chris, I'd have to say. Very good oh, quiz. It was, as Josh said, devilish. devilish. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, even being devilish, Josh, you got two on the board there, so not a complete disaster. Yeah, yeah, I'm pleased. I'm pleased in the end. You've hung, it, you've hung, in, the t- you've hung in the tie, so that's, that's the thing. <laughs> so the scores are as they... as we Well, next week we'll come to a point where we've all... We're all out of 30, so it'll be a good barometer next week. But, Josh, you are currently on 16 out of 30. I'm on 14.5 out of 25. And, Chris, you're on 11.5 out of 25. So we are very close, all of us. Mm. I need a big 5 out of 5 to get ahead of Josh. A big 5 out of 5 to just sneak ahead of Josh. I need 2 to sneak ahead of Josh. It's more than plausible to suggest that you'll get 5 and I'll get 2 next week. And we'll all be (laughs) on the same scores, pretty much. Shall I but, just do a purely F1 quiz and then we can all sort of be level? I mean, no, because that will clearly not be anything in my favour. You should do an Aston Villa quiz for two questions and an F1 quiz for three questions. Do it that way instead. And then we'll all join each other hand in hand, loving life like the big, lovely family we are. But as has already been alluded to, Josh, it's your turn next week. Please don't go too hard because it it's... It'll be it's different. It won't be board. hard. Different, I like. As long as it's not hard, I'm still looking forward to it, Josh. Bring on next week. So that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you so much if you listened. Thanks for joining me again, Chris and Josh. Did you have a, did you have a good week? It certainly did. It was really good room, yeah. And a great quiz, Chris. Cheers. We both yeah, got points fun. on the board. Yeah. It's nice to get points on the board after after a quiz it's a good feeling yes yeah because uh, i've been on the receiving end of that with no points and uh, <laughs> i did feel pretty low pretty low um anyway it's now time just before we go for the poll for this week and the poll for this week is all about the best ever footballing comeback and there's so many good ones to choose from i had a resounding win with the last poll i think i'm probably going to lose this one but there's a reason i've gone for it i'm going to come to you first chris what is your greatest ever footballing comeback? The greatest one I've ever seen, and it's etched into my memory and uh, pretty pretty clearly, and it comes up time and time again in uh, in culture and everything around the world as well. And it's Liverpool's 2005 Champions League final, 3-0 down to AC Milan at half-time, uh, coming back to draw. There's penalty saves in there. Amazing, well, in the shootout by Judek, an amazing save in extra time before it. And it's just remarkable stuff, really. And a fairly unfancy team as well. I mean, the might we in an earlier podcast, we talked about AC Milan's amazing, an incredible team, absolutely perfect. Whereas Liverpool were sort of slumming a bit with Smisa and Traore in there and an injured Harry Kuehl. So it really was against the odds. And there's all this folklore around the game of like difficulty of the fans getting to, even to the stadium and being stuck in traffic for hours almost missing the start of the game uh, the infamous halftime where Traore actually got changed into his uh, suit uh, at halftime and then quickly had to change back into his kit because somebody had got injured uh, it's just all this sort of madness going on uh, absolutely remarkable stuff and uh, to my sort of 15 year old self it's a, a game that I look back on pretty fondly even not really as a Liverpool fan in any particular no particular allegiance to them. It was just a wonderful game. 
It was. It was an absolutely incredible game. Um, Josh, hard to beat, but yours possibly does. So I've gone for a comeback over over two legs, really. So Barcelona beating Liverpool 3-0 in the first leg, Champions League semi-finals last year. Liverpool unbelievably coming back to win 4-0 and win the tie uh, without going to extra time, which was incredible. Kind of capped by a ridiculously clever corner, which I've never seen before, which just showed just how kind of committed they were to win and just how kind of, I don't know, unswitched on Barcelona were mentally after a kind of onslaught from Liverpool even more impressive given that they played pretty well in the first leg. It was a really uh, kind of unbalanced scoreline given Liverpool's performance to lose 3-0 in the first leg. And right, to if I remember of... rightly, an amazing free kick from Leo Messi, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, that was yeah, a tricky guard, Messi. Yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah. He just completely ran the show. Remarkable performance, but uh, all in vain. Indeed. So, yeah, to and the best, possibly the best player who've ever lived to beat that team 4-0 with no reply was unbelievable. Yeah, I <laughs> thought I'd slip that in there. I thought that's who Josh yeah, was talking was about. Nice. I thought Dubokarig <laughs> was the greatest player who's ever lived. Um, but it, it, just that Trent Alexander-Arnold corner kick to Dubokarig to make it 4-0 was just incredible. I let it off my sofa. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think I did the same and I'm not a Liverpool fan in the slightest. I think that game as well is sort of and what's gone on since really is cemented Divock Origi is a cult hero. I think as long as the rest, as long as he lives, really, <laughs> Anfield. I mean, and he's continued to do it like the other week against Arsenal. He's just uh, really developing that sort. What a guy! So off the he bench, is, yeah. The the big the big game player. You cannot yeah. accuse that guy of not playing, not turning up for the big games. Um, what a great suggestion! Two brilliant suggestions. I was I really wanted to go for the Man United come back in the Champions League final a goal down and in, in, in injury time and two corners to win it however I haven't gone for that and people give me abuse on Twitter for that that's fine because that's completely understandable the one I have gone for and it's partly because I was there I was in Newcastle that weekend not at the ground we couldn't get tickets we tried to go and for that I'll be forever devastated but it was Newcastle 4 Arsenal 4 Arsenal 4 nil up at half time and it looked like there was no way back for, for for Newcastle at all. They scored a penalty. They got back into the game. They, I think they got another penalty later on in the game for a ridiculous decision. I think Leon Best also scored in that game. It was 4-3. So many of the fans who had left must have been tearing their hair out because they definitely left at half-time. And then up up steps Czech Tiote with a delicious volley from outside the area. The ball went so high on his wrong foot, left-footed, really good volley, and he just runs away. The Newcastle fans were going crazy, and Czech Tiote was absolutely loving life. Come down from 4-0 down, got back to 4-all, and it was just an incredible... I mean, to put it into perspective, we were in the city centre at that point, and when the Newcastle goals were, were going in, when it got to the fourth goal you could hear the fans from the city centre. That's how loud their their celebrations were. It was just incredible. And to top that off, because that happened, if they lost 4-0, it would have been a terrible night out. They got back to 4-all, and it was such a good night out in Newcastle afterwards. So that's the, the one I've gone for, for various reasons. It may not be the most memorable comeback, but for me, it was such a good comeback. 
and fair play to Newcastle. If you had to choose, guys, which one do you think is going to win? I think it depends how many uh, <laughs> Liverpool fans you've got. Uh, and how many uh, people who just don't like Liverpool. So I think that'll and, be... And, and how many Leon Best fans we've got as well. Yeah, well, of course, yeah. Obviously. I think that'll be the, the tipping point, really, yeah. That must be Alan Pardew's greatest moment as a manager, surely. Um, it's a lot better than when he did that dance after going one and up in the FA Cup final. I think that'll yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. My favourite uh, Alan Pardew moment is when he uh, swore at Pellegrini oh, on the side. Called him words <laughs> I, I cannot repeat. Can't repeat. <laughs> I've, uh, I've I think it's an old, an old C word, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Shut your noise. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> absolutely wonderful stuff. Uh, Josh, which one do you think is going to win this week? I think Istanbul will win. But I think if it was the best goal to seal a comeback, it would be yours, Dan, no doubt. Yeah, quite possibly. I think Istanbul will win as well, um, personally. But as always, there will be another section. If you think, the listeners out there, if you think that there is a one we've missed, one that you think is the greatest ever comeback, let us know. Comment in the section below and we'll share your best comments next time. Guys, are you back in for next Monday? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'll be Ready and raring to go once again. Can't wait, as ever. Remember, if you want to follow us on Twitter, it's at Pod Sports Weekly. Follow us there for all the chat, for all of the podcasts that have been so far and the polls that we've mentioned. But until next week, this has been Sports Weekly. Thank you very much for listening.